The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 16th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and uh, open them up to the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. One of the questions I get asked most often from people who come to Redemption Hill, excuse me, and have been here for, you know, a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, uh, of all the things I get asked, one of the things I get asked most often is, why do you guys preach through entire books of the Bible? Like, what's the, what's the reasoning behind that? It's, It has not been a common practice in American churches for the last number of decades. It wasn't in the church I grew up in or any of the churches I grew up in. And there's a a lot of reasons why it would be maybe wise and and healthy in in a teaching ministry to do that. Um, As pastors, it's actually safe and and protective of us. You know, we, we have hobby horses and things that we like. And it would be easy for us any given week to go somewhere in the Bible that might say something we want to say to somebody we're thinking about out there and we can go and do it and... Well, going verse by verse requires us to deal with things we might not otherwise choose to deal with. We also get to think God's thoughts after him. What, what was behind God inspiring that writer of that book to write to his people in that time so much so that God preserved it for us now? As we think those thoughts after them, we begin to make connections. We begin to see how it all works together. But one of the reasons that rarely gets mentioned or brought up that As I think about why it's a value for us to do what we do when we go through books of the Bible like this is I think for many of us who who come to the Bible and even if you grew up in the church, it's easy to come to the Bible like it's this far off distant thing. And the more time we spend together thinking deeply and trying to think clearly and encourage one another in a particular book of the Bible as we work through it together, the space between the original audience and us gets narrow, right? The, the letter that we are considering was written in 50 AD, most scholars think. 50 AD. It is 2022. What does 50 AD have to do with 2022? It was written before the internet, right? It was written before the iPhone. It, it was written before electricity, all right? What, what, what does it have to do with us? It can be very easy to come to God's word. Like there's this massive gap and there's this massive space and distance between them and between us. But yet the more time that we spend in it together, following the thoughts that God has inspired, the, the more narrow that gap gets because we see we're not as unlike them as we might think. We have a whole lot more in common with them than we may originally consider. Our days, our times, our cities, even our seasons might be different and the context in which things get lived out might be different. But in essence, when we understand what God is saying to his people, even in 50 AD, we begin to see we have a whole lot more in common with them than we may have realized. I mean, so far, just to kind of get you where we are, just to see, like this church in Thessalonica, so many centuries ago, we have heard the good news of God's grace proclaimed, and many, many have received that word, and God has taken up residence in your heart, given you a new heart. 
You have received the word of his grace. And you have, like this church, Paul said, turned from trusting in things that cannot save, things that, that cannot bring real stability, real identity, real hope, and a real future. You've turned from those things and to the true and living God. And in your faith in Jesus, turning to him, God has taken up a residence in you by his Holy Spirit. And he is in the process of continuing to conform your image into that of reflection of his son. He's taken up the business of making you more like Jesus. And the evidence of his love taking up residence in you and increasingly becoming the controlling passion of your life is littered all throughout the body of Christ. Over and over, Paul has been helping them to see in the first half of the letter all the evidences of God's goodness and grace that they can see as they look at one another. As they see one another's lives. As they see the decisions that are being made, the sacrifices they are being made, all being made as an overflow of the expression of the love that they understand themselves to have been loved with by God. Evidences of grace abound in this place. And it's all by the work of God's kindness. It's all, Paul said last week, ultimately, God taught. And like Paul, we want to see it continue. We want to see it grow. We want to see it overflow. We, we want it to keep going. That's what Paul's been saying. And as we've kept with the letter, we, we've realized that Man, you go through almost three full chapters of Paul just continually going back to all the evidences of God's kindness and grace at work in their lives and through them, all around them, all this stuff. As great as it all sounds, we realize they're, they're not perfect. And we're not perfect. Just like this church, then we are still in process. That God's will for our lives, as Paul reminded us earlier in the letter, is that his process of love continue to increasingly change, transform us into reflections of his son. And for his will for us to be accomplished, he didn't just leave us a, a, an instruction manual in a widget like Ikea. Like, figure it out. Get together with someone who might be smarter than you and see the best ways you can come to figure out how to become more like Jesus. No, Paul's reminded them over and over again that God has empowered us for this by taking up residence in our hearts and his spirit. That his spirit is alive and at work and the hearts that he has given us continuing to fan into flame our affections for him, for his word, for his will, for his ways and empowering us to not only delight in those things, but to live according to those things in such a way, Paul says, that it's ultimately pleasing to God for his glory and our deepest joy. The space between us isn't quite as large as we might actually think. But Paul is not just a, a philosopher who, who likes to kind of wax on about these things, living, pleasing to God, and all these ideas. He, he actually loves them so much that he, he begins to get down at a very real, very street level with them to talk about how this love of God that is now a controlling passion of their hearts, that's how he talks about it in other letters, being controlled by this love of Christ, how that then shapes the way we actually live in very real, personal, ordinary, and intimate realities of life. 
See, concerns and questions were most likely brought back to Paul by Timothy when Timothy came back with the good report of this church. And so Paul then, after encouraging them in this love that he can see at work in them, wants to help them see how to live this life out through the lens of that love. Right? There's a way that we live that demonstrates that the love of Christ is controlling us and shaping us. There's a way that it can be seen. And so Paul begins to kind of attack these questions and these concerns in these areas, right? In the area of our sexual ethics. Right? Paul's reminded this church that this love shapes the way we see one another. We see and relate to one another in honor and in holiness. This love shapes the way we actually live in, in the most intimate relationships in life. He went on to say that this love gives us a new lens to even see the purposes for the gift of work that he's given us. That when we see this, this gift that he's given us, this labor, this, these callings that he's called us to, through the lens of his love, we understand our callings and our work to not be about us. Our wealth, our status, our leisure, our hobbies, our time, but through the lens of this love that is now controlling our hearts, we see those very things as means of love for one another of love, of generosity, of advancement of God's purposes in one another's lives. And this lens leads us to aspire to an entirely new kind of living, a quiet and, and humble way of living, responsible, sacrificial, and generous. Right? It couldn't be any more on point for people in 2022 than that. The space between us and the Thessalonians, it's not as large as we think. And this morning, Paul is going to continue as we pick back up in chapter four, and he's going to address another eminently relatable reality, a reality that is common to all of humanity. There isn't a demographic of humanity that is not familiar with what Paul is going to talk about. This morning, Paul is going to address hopelessness and grief. Again, my goodness. If there wasn't something in the last three years that could be on point for Paul to address. The last three years, maybe you or certainly someone you know or are close to has lost something. We've lost jobs, we've lost friendships, many have lost marriages. In fact, we often talk about the last three years, 2019 to, to, to 2022, in, in a common parlance of having lost those years. Where'd they even go? And there's a grief that's attending to all that loss. There's a grief that's common in all that loss and real in all that loss. But yet, as you think about it, the relationships, the, the friendships, the, the jobs, all, the, all those things, they don't carry with them the weight or the air of finality in their loss though all of those things in time can be replaced new jobs can be acquired new friendships established new relationships even leading to new unions formed paul's going to get at something a little bit different paul wants the church to understand that there is a loss that's common to all of us in all places and at all times. It cuts across every ethnicity, every century, every demographic that does carry with it 
a sense of finality. And that's the loss and the grief of death. Like the loss of relationships, friends, jobs, all the things the last three years, this has been one that many have tasted as well. And what Paul is going to address and what God is inspiring Paul to write for the church is that there is a way for us to understand how being controlled by the love of Jesus shapes then how we deal with death, how we deal with loss, how we actually deal with grief, grief, how we actually grieve. Let's listen to what he says, picking up in verse 13 of chapter 4. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, just for those that didn't grow up in the church and and you read that, he's not talking about people who like to take naps, right? People who who just like to sleep all all day and all night. That's not what he's talking about. In, In Paul's day, this was a common euphemism for death. He's talking about those who have died. See, most likely, word came back to Paul from Timothy, from the church, that in the time between when Paul got run out of Thessalonica and the time in which Timothy came back with that report about how the church is doing, someone or members of that local church community have died. And questions have begun to arise. Worries have begun to arise. Paul taught them the fullness of the good news of God's grace to his people in his son Jesus, which also includes his imminent return and the eternal establishment of his kingdom. But what about those who died before he comes back? What about those that have died since Paul left? Are they going to miss out? Are we going to see him again? Right, we know from another letter that Paul writes to this church that in time, and, and maybe already it was happening, but false teachers were going to come into the church and they were going to teach that the resurrection that the gospel speaks about for Jesus and for God's people is actually a spiritual resurrection, not a physical or a real bodily resurrection, and it already happened. So here they are with people they love who have died. They know Jesus is going to come back, but they're not sure what's going to happen to them. Somehow are they disadvantaged in light of God's kingdom because they've died. And this is causing a lot of understandable confusion, a lot of understandable concern. So Paul writes back to his friends whom he loves, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to live in ignorance, right? Why? That's what he says next. That, that. It's very important. That. Here's why. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Hopelessness was apparently beginning to set in in the hearts of some of God's people. Hopelessness was threatening to take root. Friends, the space between them and the space between us, it's, it's so narrow. And the prevailing worldviews of their day offered no tangible hope in the face of death. There were myths about an afterlife in some stripes of worldviews of the day, but it was based upon fickle and unpleasing gods. The dominant view, even for those who followed that, was that this really was all there is. This is it. Even the stories and the myths of something beyond death didn't offer any hope because there was nothing that you could actually count on, right? Right? 
the space between them and us is not as great as it seems sometimes. 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell, you probably read Russell when you were in college, he would have been just as at home in first century Macedonia as he was in the 20th century West. Russell said, the life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, towards a goal that few can hope to reach and where none will tarry long. Ta-da. That's all there is. This is it. Right? These thoughts, these views of the world, regardless of whatever title or name or stripe they come by, they, they all give birth to this thought and belief in heart that this is all there is. This is it. When you hear someone talk about materialism at heart philosophically, that's what they're talking about. We're talking about a way of viewing life in the world where the material, the physical, that's all there is. Beyond that, there is nothing. It is an empty and stupid view of the world that leads us, though, to invest everything in things that won't last. It leads us to invest in everything that has really no eternal consequence. And if you and I are even in the good times and the best of times willing to face the reality of death, we often we often spend a great deal of energy and time and resource trying to outrun it. Trying to avoid it. Maybe the right diet, the right exercise program, I can, I can outrun this thing, right? I can run out the clock on it. You know, maybe if I just keep myself far enough away from it, my goodness, if there's something in 21st century America that we keep ourselves away from, it's death. If I can just keep myself far enough away from it and maintain a, a far enough emotional distance from it, then I won't actually have to deal with the reality of it. If it gets too close, well, there's 10,000 different avenues and escape doors with which I can numb myself from its reality. But in the meantime, I'll just try to distract myself from it. Through my work, through my hobbies, through whatever it is, right? Because if we really faced it, really, really faced the reality of it, we'd have to realize that in and of ourselves, there's nothing that we can do about it. It's inevitable. We can't defeat it. And apart from an almighty God who could intervene, there's no hope. Right? If this is all there is, if this material world is really all that there is, then there's nothing worth more in this life than winning. However you define it. At whatever cost it may ask. Because what else is there to live for? Friends, that is the definition of hopelessness. But here's the thing. As followers of Jesus who are still in process, we have to be honest that we have been infected by this. 
and affected by this more than we want to admit. We even have our own churchy versions of the same kind of escape and denial and numbing that we see in the world around us. We're just as infected in heart, though we may not confess it with our mouths, the way we often live and the decisions that we make in heart would display that there might be part of us that really thinks this is all there is. I best not miss out on getting mine right now because I'm not sure there's anything better. Listen, Paul didn't write to the church and say, church, stop grieving. He didn't write to to the church and say, look, people are going to die, just get over it, that's the way it is. No, as one writer said, he Paul was reminding the church that death is the living enemy of everything that is good and beautiful about life as God planned it. Death should make you morally sad and righteously mad. Death is a cruel indicator that the world is broken and not functioning according to God's original design. Every loss of life gives us a reminder to us that death is still alive. And it's biblical, it's good, and it's right to treat death as the very sad, unnatural thing that it actually is. God actually encourages you to mourn. He doesn't encourage his people to to try to put on their, their best happy face in the face of death when you're crushed with grief. He doesn't encourage us together as one is grieving to try to help each other with niceties and and theological platitudes. No, all throughout God's story, he approves of his people's tears. Death is unnatural. And at the same time, he welcomes you and I to look at these tears and to look at death through the eyes of Jesus. The hope that he provides isn't going to remove your grief. That was never how it was intended to be. The hope of Jesus and the grief of death isn't to remove the pain. It isn't to remove the grief. But the hope is there to allow you to grieve in an entirely new way. And this is what Paul was getting after. Look what he says in verse 14. For, So here's another reason clause, right? For. In fact, verse 14 through verse 17 are one sentence in the original language. And it's just reason clauses stacked on top of each other. Listen to the for over and over again because this is what he's talking about. For, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, this is one of the fundamental earliest Christian statements of faith that would have been confessed together by God's people when they gathered. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus is what Paul's talking about here. My goodness, those of you that are, are joining us and are seeing Jesus together reading through the Bible, it's in, it's in your worship guides, you did this on Friday, Mark 16. God prepared your hearts in advance for this as you read Mark 16 about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, 
through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And I love the way the NIV, if you have the NIV says it, those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul is reminding the church that for those who are in Jesus, who by faith have believed in Jesus, death is to be woken up from just like sleep. The first and fundamental reason that you and I have to grieve differently, grieve with hope, is the resurrection of Jesus. Our grieving is real. It's no less intense. It's no less emotional, but it has a different flavor to it. The tears taste different because of Jesus' resurrection. Because we know someone who went into the grave and came back out. We know someone who literally tasted the grip of death and rose again. And we know that all who are in him are going to wake up. Death doesn't get the last word. And I love the way that Paul emphasizes this when he says that God will bring those who are in him with Jesus. What Paul is saying here, if you, you just kind of stop and think back to like the fundamental reality that Paul is pointing to in this statement, is that even death itself cannot break the union. It can't break the bond. It can't break the grip that Jesus has on those who are in him. The union that you have with Jesus by God's grace, Paul is saying, is, is more fundamental. Um, it, it's more elemental. It's more basic. And when I say that, I mean like basic as in like the building blocks. Like, like the more, it's more fundamental and elemental than life itself because even death can't break it. It's so fundamental, so elemental, that it itself defeats death. Just as Jesus died and rose, we too, as those who are in him, will die and one day rise with him. There is a way that we can grieve that's different, that has the flavor of hope first because we know someone who died and rose again and in whom he has promised to bring with him from the grave when he returns. And that's where Paul goes next. Listen to what he says next, verse 15. Now, these kind of all go together, so I'm gonna read them together and then we'll, we'll come back. For, so again, he's stacking reason clauses here, right? For, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Right, this is Jesus' authority with which Paul is speaking here. This is something Jesus said. He's probably alluding to the te a teaching that we have in the Gospels, maybe in Matthew 24, but it's something that Jesus said, and either Paul ha had heard from one of the disciples, one of the apostles, was recounted in the church. We don't know exactly the place he's talking about, but this is from Jesus. And he says that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. All right, so 
so far from hopeless or, or missing out. Like on the day of Jesus, Paul is pointing to the fact that the dead in Christ are going to rise and there's going to be some level of preeminence in this. Somehow they, they are on the first order of Jesus' mind in this time, right? Then in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Now I will say this and then we're going to talk about what Paul is saying. American Christianity in the 20th century has, has made a meal of these verses, right? These verses, along with Jesus' teaching in, in Matthew 24, have formed the foundation of a school of theology that has become dominant in the American Christian culture, popularized, if you're not knowing what I'm talking about, in the Left Behind series of books and movies. It's a theological framework that's built on these verses and some others that has only taken root in the history of the church in America in the 20th century. No other part of the world, the Christian world, agrees with this. Church history doesn't agree with this. But it took root in America. And we don't have time to tease apart all of the various aspects of this. But I will simply tell you as we go through this, I don't agree with the way that it has been commonly taught in America. There is a, a word that, that's used here when he talks about being caught up with Jesus. That when the Bible was translated into Latin in the Vulgate, it used a Latin word, raptio, which translates into English, into rapture. And it's from that picture in these verses and what Jesus taught in Matthew 24 that this entire theology has been built. And I think the forest has been missed for the trees. I think the, the point of what Paul is saying here has been missed by the way this has been teased out in our culture. And I'll say this, there are good people who love Jesus deeply, who probably love him functionally at heart in greater and deeper measure than I do, who believe this, that we disagree. And it's okay, they might be right in the end, right? I have to admit, I was on a plane flying home from Louisville this week writing this sermon, and I was writing it and I was going, you know, for those of you that have seen that Left Behind movie, that, there's that weird scene where all of a sudden you can't find the kids on the airplane because something's happened, right? I'm like, hey, you know, maybe they're right. I don't know. It was weird to sit there and write this sermon on that airplane, but it is what it is. But here's the thing, right? I think Paul is saying something far more profound than our practice of theology in the last hundred years has taken from this passage. I think it's far more profound than all of that, right? Paul is pointing the attention of God's people forward to the anticipated day of Jesus' return, and he's painting a picture. And it's an amazing picture. It's a picture that he takes from Exodus chapter 19. Right, this is all familiar language to God's people, what Paul is saying here. In Exodus chapter 19, it's, it's the great moment when God descends on Mount Sinai to meet with his people and to form a relationship with his people, a covenant union with his people where he then gives his people his word for their lives, his direction for their lives and for their joy. Just listen to this real quick. Exodus 19, starting in verse 16, and just listen for some words and familiarity, right? 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And this is a very important part. We're going to talk about this in just a second. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And as the sound of the trumpet, verse 19, grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai in cloud to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God came down to enter a relationship with his people. Thick clouds, trumpet blasts, cries of the messenger. People came out to meet God. But only here in Exodus 19, Moses went up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is taking something very familiar to them, even without a deep, rich, historical, let's just say Old Testament knowledge for some of them. And he used a word in 1 Thessalonians 4 that everybody would have understood when he said, we're going to meet God. That is a word that was common in their day for an event that would happen when a, a ruler, a, a political ruler, even if it was the emperor or Caesar himself, would come to visit a city. It was a royal visitation. That's what the word meant. It's parousia. It's a royal visitation. Whenever a, a, a leading ruler or even Caesar or an emperor would come to visit a city, what would happen is the city would send a delegation of people from the city outside of the wall to meet that ruler outside of the city where they would then escort him into the city where his display of sovereignty would go on in ceremony, right? If it was the Caesar or the emperor, most historians will, will note different instances, the entire city would gather together outside of the wall to escort the ruler in, right? God, Exodus 19, comes down to meet with his people, to establish a relationship with his people. His people go out of the camp to the mountain, but only Moses got to go up, right? Paul is saying on this day, this day that we're all to look forward to with anticipation, Jesus' royal return, the world's true king and true Lord, he is going to return. And there is going to be a delegation that is going to welcome his return. The head of that delegation, Paul said, is going to be those who have died in faith in him, who are in him. They won't miss it. They're not going to be left out. Far from it, it seems to be that his first order of business is for them to rise from their graves and then together all who are in him are going to be with him. As he returns, not up into the heavens and everybody disappears, but he returns and restores and renews all that sin has destroyed. A new heavens and a new earth and his kingdom is established fully and finally and together we are with him and we're with him into that kingdom. Paul's painting a picture of something so much more profound than the 20th century theologians have, have picked it apart to be. Paul's talking about a day when the invisible reality is finally going to be seen for all that it is. It's like when you're in a room and, and the blinds are pulled, or even just these stained glass, right? You can't see what's outside that glass. You can't see the trees. You can't see the cars. You can't see the people, but they're real and they're there. 
On this day, it's like the curtain's going to be pulled back and that which is true and real and we haven't been able to see, all we'll finally see. And those who are in him are going to be with him. And all that has been wrong is going to be made right. Friends, this is the hope of Christianity that Paul is talking about. And the sweetness isn't in the spatial dimensions of of how it's all going to work. The sweetness is in what Paul said at the end of verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. Right? That's what he's pointing to. That's the purpose. That's the hope. That should be the deepest desire of all of God's people. We'll be with him forever. We're going to be together with all who are in him forever with him. No one misses out. No one in Jesus misses out on this glorious joy. Right? 20th century American theology has simply taken their eyes off the ball when it comes to what Paul is saying here. The point of the entire thing is the nature of the event, the return of Jesus. Not the spatial locations of how it's all going to work. You realize that when he returns, it's not going to be to the top of a singular mountain. It is a global reality that defies all spatial thinking in our mind. When he returns, all will see him. All who are in him are going to be with him. He is above all things. I personally think that's why Paul alludes to it being in the air. Because there is not a localized place of which he is king. He is king over all of creation. It's about who we're going to be with. That's the point of what Paul is talking about. All the other stuff is secondary to the reality that we're going to be with him. And no one misses out on this reality. And when we're with him and he returns... Death will be swallowed up forever. Crying will be no more. All of the hope that we have will be consummated. And grief, even itself, will be banished for all of eternity. That's why Paul says in verse 18, Therefore, because of this, encourage one another with these words. This is the courage that you and I are to be depositing into one another's hearts on a regular basis. Not platitudes, not niceties. That's not how we grieve together in hope. No, it's gospel courage. It's gospel weight. And it's only gospel weight that can hold our hearts steady in the midst of grief, right? Only in Jesus does death not get the last word even for those who were worried about those who had died before his return and children, fathers, mothers, grandmothers, Paul's right, we'll get to see him again. All who have died in him will be together with him. No one in him gets to miss out. That's the hope. That's the joy so, so let, me, let me ask, as, as Paul's kind of laid this out, if you're, if you're here this morning and you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want you to know as every week, we are glad that you are here. We're so glad that you're here. The question I would ask of you in, in light of what Paul is trying to encourage this church in is, how do you cope with the reality of death? 
sincerely. In what? If you're willing to face it and the inevitability of it for what it is, where do you find hope? If you're really honest with yourself, do you have any hope? Or is this all there is? Is this it? Friend, God wants you to know that there is a great, and as the saints of old would say, I think it was the King James Version that started, there is a blessed hope that can be yours, that you can literally have and live in. If you will but trust in Jesus, the very Son of God whom he sent, the the very true God who is rightly offended by all of our sin, rightly offended by all of our transgression, rightly just to judge us for it all. Yet in love, he sent his own son who lived a perfectly pleasing life. And he did it in confidence and trust and joy and delight in his heavenly father. And in his perfectly pleasing life, he displayed for us the goodness of the father that he trusted. And then Jesus, in what seems like the most striking and jarring exchange in all of history, he willingly took his perfectly pleasing life and laid it down to die in our place for our unpleasing sinful life. And this is what you've got to understand if you've never understood Christianity. Like the, the hinge of that whole thing isn't just that Jesus died. It's the manner in which he died. He died as a substitute. His death wasn't an accident. His death wasn't some kind of like noble, chivalrous example for all of humanity. His death wasn't a mistake. His death was an intentional substitution. He laid his perfectly pleasing life down on the cross to suffer and to die the just judgment that our lives deserve. He did it in our place as a substitute sacrifice for us. And he literally died. He tasted the grip and the darkness of death, literally. And three days later, he rose from the dead, exited the tomb, defeating death itself, where he would then, in a manner of time, ascend into heaven to be at the right hand of his father, where he presented his sacrifice to his father. What was his sacrifice? Himself. And God the Father received that sacrifice not only as pleasing but sufficient so that all who would be found in Jesus by faith, believing in Jesus for who he is with all that we are, all that is his becomes ours. His perfect life becomes ours. His victorious resurrection from the dead becomes ours. His life now powers ours. This is the promise of the gospel His resurrection guarantees all the promises of God to us. Friends, you can get in on that. How? You just have to be in Jesus. Right? I got on a plane from Louisville to Richmond. I couldn't be next to it. I couldn't be on it. I couldn't be behind it. I had to actually get into it. 
into it, buckled up so much so that whatever happened to that plane happened to me. This hope is yours if you would but believe in Jesus and be found in him. In him, all that is his becomes yours. How do you get in him? By repenting of all of the other things you think are going to save you from the reality of death. By repenting of all the other things you think are going to bring you the security and the identity and the comfort that your heart so longs for. By repenting of all of those things and believing. Believing. That's what faith is. Believing in him as the sufficient satisfier of your soul and heart. God gives you a new heart and he takes up residence in you and begins to empower your life in such a way that the pleasing life of Jesus becomes reflected in you. And so this is hope. This is the source of joy. This is how you and I have the certainty of the promise that we will be with Jesus forever. I mean, what better hope is there? I mean, what better hope do you actually have? If you're here this morning and, and, and you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I'll just reframe the last statement differently for you. What better hope do you have to offer other people? What better hope is there? I had one guy at the conference I was at this week was talking about suffering and death and loss and it was in the context of, of multicultural ministry and he said you need to understand that the tears of loss and suffering and death are cross-cultural you want multicultural ministry we used to learn to be and grieve with people because tears and loss and death they they know no bound at all amongst people what better news what better hope is there to offer grieving, hopeless people than the news of Jesus? There is no better hope in the face of death than being found in him. In fact, the, the great churchmen of old who, who penned the, the Westminster Confession, they would say it this way, outside of Jesus, right, not being in him, Outside of Jesus, even if you're near him, around him, know things about him, you know the plane number, you know the ticket number, you know the route, but you haven't gotten in the plane. Outside of Jesus, when death comes, their bodies will lay in their graves as in prisons, awaiting nothing but the final judgment of God and eternal death separating body and soul from the source of life forever. Friends, you and I have the only news to set those prisoners free, period. Part of Paul's word to the church, even in the encouragement, is a word to take more seriously telling people of the hope to be found in Jesus. I know it's, it's pressed on me. When I see the parts of my heart that have gotten captured into thinking that this is really all there is and my decisions are made around that and, and trying to get as much out of this as I can, I have very little impulse left in me at times to tell people of the hope that's theirs in Jesus, especially in the face of the loss of this. I'm just going to be honest with you. 
This is reality. We have the only news and the only hope that can set the prisoners free from the the grave of death. We've got to take that more seriously. Wealth can't buy your way out of it. Medicine can't save you from it. Success isn't going to exempt you from it. Only Jesus, who has tasted the darkness and the coldness of death and gotten up and defeated it, can. Which is why the Westminster Confession will go on to say, for those who die in him, our bodies will lay as in beds, waiting for the call to wake up and rise and to meet our Savior. That's why cemeteries are called sleeping places in Christian churches. Because they're just waiting the call to wake up. Friends, is this news sweet to you? Uh, Again, it is going to be hard for you and I to take Paul's words in verse 18 seriously to encourage one another. It's going to be hard to encourage one another with something that we don't draw courage or hope or joy from. I think that's what's been lost in the last hundred years of American theology, especially in this passage. This, this isn't a message of escapism or evacuation. That's how it's been taught. It's a message of the certainty of the world's true king and the world's true Lord returning and renewing all things and those who are in him being together with him for all of eternity. It's not escapism. We had 10,000 other ways that we do that, right? This is how you and I are able to press in to the difficulties of life in a fallen world and face them with hope. Because death doesn't win. It doesn't get the last word. And because of that, that should change how we live. That should change the decisions we make. That should change the priorities we have. That should change the why when we wake up and go on about our day. It's going to be hard to encourage one another with this if we're not drawing courage and hope from it. And we all feel it. We know the story. We we were made for something so much more. We were made for Eden, and yet we're gathered together on a Sunday morning in 2022 in Richmond. It's not Eden. John Steinbeck said, we're we're somewhere east of Eden, right? Things are not what they were meant to be. And so here we are living in in the space between this present world and this present grieving and this present pain and the promise of future glory, an eternal future with Jesus, In the space between, how about you and I make it our aim to demonstrate to the world a a different way of grieving? A way of grieving that demonstrates that those who know that King Jesus is coming is certain and that when he comes, all that is wrong will be made right. A way of grieving that doesn't deny the pain and deny the tears, but demonstrates that there's something so much better. There's something so much more 
that Jesus is better than all that we feel that we've lost? How about in the space between, we, we make it our aim to trust him in our grief while we wait, while we wait for that day which he's promised? And how about we do it together in hope? Friends, let me pray for us, and then together we're going to respond to God's word, and I'll kind of guide us through how we're going to do that. It's easy, Lord. It's easy for our hearts to be captivated by ideas and, 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 and thoughts that would tell us that and maybe this is all there is, and if it's all there is, and I should be about getting out of it as much as I possibly can. Like I, I, I need to be about this or about that because I'm not so sure. It's so easy for our hearts to get caught up in doubt by the pressures and, and everything going on around us. And so, Lord, we ask, we, we, we need you by your Holy Spirit working through your word to continue to reframe our understanding of reality. Lord, we need to be, we need to be a people of the future whose, whose eyes are set on the, on the certain promise of your return. And on the promise that there's so much more to come. And that being with you then and forever is better than anything that the now can even hold out. And we need that reality then to shape not just how we grieve in hope, but shape the way we live today, tomorrow, and the next day. Shape the way we make decisions. Shape the way we set priorities. Shape the way we wake up and go about our days. Shape the, the understanding and the sense of the news that we have to offer. I think it's easy for us today to, to get caught up into the idea that all that you hold out for us in the future, the reality of your very real and present eternal kingdom is, is something of, of, of fantasy. Lord, we need you to open up our eyes. Only you can do it. Holy Spirit, I can't convince it. If I can convince somebody of it, someone can convince them out of it. We, you've got to do it. So we ask that you would help us to see see your kingdom and your son rightly and for our hearts to long long for the day when all that we were eternally made for all that we have believed by faith becomes sight and real Lord, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' good name Amen You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.